Hey folks, you know what? A small regret is slouching in the dentist chair thinking I should have brushed and flossed better. A big health regret is listening to your doctor and thinking I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. I have that regret a lot. Better health today and when it matters most is why I take Field of Greens. Field of Greens is unlike any fruit and vegetable or green product. Field of Greens isn't watered down extracts. Field of Greens is an organic superfood. It's whole fruits and vegetables. Each fruit and vegetable was selected by doctors to support vital body functions like heart, liver, kidneys, metabolism, and of course, your immune system. And only Field of Greens is backed by a better health promise. At your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or you're gonna get your money back. Don't look back and say, I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. Field of Greens is a key to better health today, right now, and when it matters most. Let's get you started with 15% off and free shipping. All you got to do is visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS at checkout. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Hello, America, and welcome to the Friday edition of the John Solomon Reports podcast from Just the News, one day before the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 terror attacks. We've got a special tomorrow. Don't forget this. I just want to shout this out before I tell you about today's show. Thanks to our friends at PolicyGenius.com, where you can save lots of money on your home and car insurance. If you just go to PolicyGenius.com right now, they're sponsoring a very big special for us tomorrow. We've got an incredible lineup. Former NYPD Commissioner Bernie Carrick, former Solicitor General Ted Olson, Frank Siller, the founder of Tunnel to Towers, former Congressman Lee Hamilton, the co-chairman of the 9-11 Commission, Jason Beardsley, one of the great advocates for veterans of the war on terror, all here tomorrow to remind us that we will never forget 9-11, never forget 9-11. And to do so, we must go back and relive and relearn what we can from that heinous day 20 years ago tomorrow. Please join me for that special. We'll be live at 8 a.m. tomorrow, right around the time that the first planes hit the towers in New York City. Two-hour special, great guests, a moment to reflect. I'm also going to share some of my personal recollections, things that happened to me that were going on that day that might be of interest to you. But really, the heroes tomorrow are Bernie Carrick, Ted Olson, Frank Siller, Lee Hamilton, Jason Beardsley. Tune in for a great special made possible by our good friends at Policy Genius. And if you want to say thank you for doing that, go to policygenius.com right now, and they will help save you money on your home and car insurance. Why not do it? They save an average of $1,250, $1,250 a year for the people that signed up. I'm going to save that amount of money. I'm signing up. You should sign up. You also not only save money, you're going to say thank you for making tomorrow special possible. Tune in here tomorrow. We don't normally broadcast on Saturday, but we will be tomorrow a special, special day, the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 terror attacks. Now, today we got a great lineup. It, my, we're going to get right to it. We've got Congressman Andy Biggs, the chairman of the House Freedom Caucus, the great congressman from Arizona. He's got a lot to say about Afghan vetting, national security posture on the eve of the 9-11 20th anniversary. He's up first. And then a man we're going to talk to from Great Britain, the former British commander of all forces in Afghanistan, Colonel Richard Campus here. Boy, I think he's got some sharp words for Joe Biden and what just happened in Afghanistan. You're not going to want to miss that interview as well. Andy Biggs, followed by Colonel Richard Kemp, up right after this commercial break. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, a very special guest. Every time he comes on this show, we make news, we learn something. Joining us right now is the chairman of the House Freedom Caucus, the great congressman from the great state of Arizona, Andy Biggs. Congressman, great to have you on. 
Thanks, John. It's always good to be with you. Good to visit with you. It is a pretty remarkable moment in our history. I mean, I, I, I was out just in everyday America last weekend and people just can't, they keep saying to me, I don't recognize the country and what happened to America? Where's America? Bring it back. It's, it's such an amazing moment. You've been a very vocal voice on the lack of security posture that the Biden administration has had. Even before we had the Afghan crisis, you were very worried about the border and pointing out the dangers, the lack of screening, the releases. Now you have the Afghan refugee crisis. Could you tell us how concerned you are with the way screening is going on? I'm, I'm very concerned. Um, the the backstories I'm hearing is that there's really basically no vetting going on, uh, you know, regardless of what uh, Secretary Blinken is saying, or he's, you know, he said they're doing biometrics and everything. Biometrics don't mean anything if you don't have a database to check them against. And we don't have any in-country database, really, that we can rely on for Afghanistan. So they ostensibly claim they're vetting. Now, the other aspect is who's doing the vetting? And I've, I've received firsthand reports that the people who are vetting are not qualified to do vetting either. Mm. So it's really nerve-wracking. I mean, just just the notion of the measles outbreak in Wisconsin, I, I know you talked about it with Tom Tiffany, but right. when you see that, well, who's doing the vetting? And, and then the, the last thing, and Blinken refused to answer this question, was, well, what are you doing if you find somebody who is disqualified from coming into the country? Yeah. Who even your vetters think shouldn't be allowed in. And the last word I heard is, oh, we're trying to work with partners for these people. Well, nobody wants them, yeah. basically. So nobody we're stuck with them. them. And they're on our, yeah, we're stuck with them. So you're going to basically, what, are you going to open up Gitmo again? Is that, what, is, is that the way it's going to be? We, we don't know what they're going to do. Too many unanswered questions for Anthony Blinken. There was a moment in the past week where after telling us time and time and again this was an organized process, Anthony Blinken said flatly, we're doing the vetting on the back end, meaning after the people have already left Afghanistan and they're either at one of our foreign facilities or they're already in the United States at a place like Fort McCoy or one of the other places where the intake centers are. Have you ever seen a moment in American history where the vetting of, of critical incoming people was occurring after they were in the country, after the risk has already arrived? Uh, the closest that I've seen is the current open southern border. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, great point. John, yeah, great point. Yeah closest I've seen is is the lack of vetting going on down there. So it is ridiculous to think that if this were done, had been done in an organized fashion, in an organized manner, you wouldn't have given a whole country to the terrorist organization. And you would have been able to vet as you were bringing people in, because the only reason that these people didn't get vetted ostensibly is because we were trying to get everybody out within a matter of days. Yeah. because we had lost control of the country. Well, we, when we gave up Bagram Air Base, that was the end, really. It uh, really of, was a turning point, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It is um, every military strategist, every former 9-11 official that I've talked to has, has cited that as the most jaw-dropping moment in a long line of jaw-dropping moments, and uh, it doesn't... Um, right. It doesn't sit well with people. You you had a tweet this morning that really uh, caught my eye because I, I, I'm seeing this, you know, just as a reporter trying to neutrally observe this. But you wrote, Biden has no idea the fighting spirit he's awakened in the American people. This These series of events, the Afghanistan crisis, uh, challenging the Texas law, now the you know real sweeping COVID mandates that really impinge on American pre- liberty, freedom, medical privacy, is Joe Biden essentially handling uh, handing the 2022 election to Republicans? Well, I, I, I always hesitate to say yes, because there could be, let's put it this way, yes, unless there's some kind of intervening catastrophic event that he rises to the occasion of that unifies the country behind the administration, if you yeah. follow what I'm saying. Yep, yep, I mean, yep. You know, like the nine. The 9-11 event sure. really unified the country for a period of time. And, then, you know, it, wasn't, it didn't last as long as we would have liked, but it, we, we were all together, you know, all, all together. And that's what it would take because what he has done, he's had a precipitous drop. And, and all of these things are happening. You know, you've got Afghanistan. You have this, the, the, in my opinion, the, the 
fascist uh, mandates. All of those are happening in the milieu of a weak economy and inflation in, uh, soaring. And, and the, what the Democrats are want to do with the spending in the next couple of weeks is actually exacerbate inflation. So all of that is really draw, helping draw down his numbers. And, and then you throw in the southern border, you throw in the high crime rates in, in inner cities and the defund police movement and all of those things. And the CRT, which, by the way, right. is, is really huge driving issue. people crazy. Yeah. So these are huge issues and these massive issues such as the Afghanistan. And then what I believe I, I think what he's trying to do is distract from the Afghanistan moment is to do the, the mandates here after he said he'd never do the mandates. So you really have a guy who is trying to tread water right now and it's not working for him. And I, I would predict that he's going to continue to decline in his approval. He's almost down to Kamala Harris disapproval ratings, John. So, yeah, so, that's pretty low from what we know. That's pretty low. That's pretty low. <laughs> I, I believe I read it was the lowest rating a vice president ever had. Even uh, even yeah, Sparrow yeah. Agnew couldn't hit that back bottom. So, yeah, pretty, <laughs> it, it's pretty amazing. Now, right after the president announced these mandates, uh, including mandatory vaccinations for any employee of a company of 100 or more, you said you'd be introducing legislation to block you know, this assault on American freedom and liberty. Uh, do you think there are crossover votes? There are some Democrats who normally stay lockstep that'll say, listen, this is a bridge too far. Uh, we, 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 medical decisions should always remain between a person and their doctor. Uh, do you think you can pull some uh, crossover votes? This? Well, if it were today, I would say no. I think as a critical mass of outrage uh, grows, you're going to have people in these these swing districts that Trump won or lost by one point or Biden won by one point or something like that, yep. where these Democrats are going to have to say, look, this is this is too much. And um, and, and and they have to tr- join us in trying to block them. The question is, are any of those in position of leadership to advance that that bill? And right now, no, because Pelosi is stacked. All of her committee chairs are, are, are the most radical left senior members of the Democrats. And so, I mean, Carol Maloney's not going to hear that. Maxine Waters is not going to hear it. Uh, Jerry Nadler, Adam Schiff, none of, the, none of those people would hear anything like that. Although I do think Schiff is beginning to wonder how far left you can go. But in any yeah. event, that's... That'll be saying something if Adam Schiff is thinking that way. You know, you've got people like Spamberger, though, that are in these really tough districts, yes. right? Or Murphy down in, um, in Florida. Do they have to reassess whether they walk off this cliff with uh, the rest of the Democrats? They do. They do. So far, Pelosi has made everybody walk the plank, right? Yeah. Every, she runs everything. a disciplined ship. I have to give her credit. Yeah. So the question is, do these people come? I mean, so so you look at Gottheimer and the nine that, that held out recently on, uh, on the spending bill. And the reality is, if you look at this $3.5 trillion bill coming up, my guess is you're going to find that they all got some special earmarks in there. Yeah. And so she had to buy him back. She actually was using a carrot and stick approach. She threatened them that she'd wreak havoc in the redistricting and also get them primaried, make sure that they got no money, right. dry up that money for campaigns. So she threatened them on that end. And on the other end, my guess is that, that when we fully get the bill, that you'll see that there's some earmarks in for these people. Yeah, that's something we ought to be watching. That's, that sounds like a good, a good journalism exercise, too. Well, we adjust the news and get working on that. That's important. Um, in the COVID restrictions, I want to ask you something that seems to be, and maybe I'm wrong, but as I look at it as a journalist, there seems to be this inherent conflict. And it all occurred in the same week, because in the same week that the Biden administration sued Texas, saying a woman has an absolute right to make decisions about what affects her body when it comes to abortion, they don't seem to have the same right when it comes to uh, the inoculations and the COVID-19 inoculations. Do the Democrats have some sort of conflict or hypocrisy in that concept that you can tell a woman she absolutely has to get a vaccine or she loses her job, but we can't tell her that she can't have an abortion? Yeah, it's it's hypocritical, but that's what we've seen. This is the path that they're on. And it's a path of, again, I hate to keep using the term, but I think it's where we are. It's a path of tyrants where they say, 
you know, this is what we want, so here's our justification. Who cares if the justification for what we want over here is exactly inconsistent and actually in opposition to the logic we used over here? So you, I even think their abortion logic is fallacious anyway, but right. but the nub of it is a woman gets to make all health care choices herself, but not over here. Um, and, you know, their argument is, well, you know, but, but you can infect other people with COVID if you don't have vaccine. But oddly enough, with this vaccine, unique to all vaccines, quite frankly, you can infect other people if you've been vaccinated yeah. because you're shedding. You're shedding. Such and, an important uh, so, point. Yeah. Even if you're protecting yeah, yourself, you may be spreading it to other people. That's right. And so so it, the, these are inconsistent uh, rationales for their positions. But that's, that's become par for the course with uh, our friends across the aisle. Yeah, and perhaps a lot of my friends in the media, too, they they don't recognize the contradictions they're allowing to flow through their own stories uh, each day. Um, as yeah. you look out over, we're about to hit the 20th anniversary tomorrow of 9-11, a very solemn moment. How concerned are you about the security posture of the United States? I've heard some people in the last few days, including you know, folks like uh, Lee Hamilton, a you know, great Democrat that people, you know, respect on both sides of the aisle, saying we, we may be less secure because of what happened in Afghanistan, because of the mindset we have right now, defunding police. How concerned are you about the security posture? and Where are our weaknesses right now? Well, they're, they're myriad right now. One of the things you and I talked about earlier is vetting of these individuals coming in. We know that, that, um, that we actually stop some bad actors from getting in. But my guess is when you're bringing in 100,000 some odd, some people are going to get through yep. because, we, like I said, we don't have the database. So I'm concerned about who are the, the malevolent actors from that group. I'm concerned about the, the cities and the defund police and the results of that, which, again, our, our friends don't understand the logic. You get rid of the police or even talk about it. They stand down. You got more crime. Uh, Chicago's a, a disaster. I, I look at um, I look at the border, and John. I think three or four months ago, when I got this briefing, we'd already apprehended more than two times the highest level ever of of individuals on the terror watch list, and that was I want to say three four months ago when I was down at the border. One of the times I was down at the border, and so our border is so porous and open. We had twenty five hundred come in over Labor Day weekend alone in Yuma sector. You've got I, I, um, you've got places now in the remote areas of, of the Tucson sector where you're seeing 40, 50, 100 people show up, mostly right. unaccompanied minors. And so we don't know who's coming in across our border. And this is just the homeland where we are, where we're vulnerable as well. You've got South Korea where we have 30,000 troops. They're vulnerable. Taiwan is now vulnerable to, to China because Xi Jinping has seen the weakness and the fecklessness of this administration. Uh, North Korea is starting to re- renewing its, its uh, nuclear program. Iran it got all its money back. First, it got the, all the money that was created in by Obama. Now they got all their money back that was frozen under Trump. Uh, so, they've, so they're flush with cash and sitting right next door to Afghanistan where we deposited and left all of that material. And no doubt some of it, well, I've actually seen reports that some of it has made its way into Iran already. So Iran is back up. You, so you have this instability in the region. And I think the Middle East, um, I think it's, it's less stable, less safe, which means the rest of the world's less stable and less safe. Then you've got Russia parked on the Ukraine border, as you know. Right. And uh, some of those don't have perhaps intense national security interest, but they do have a a cascading effect on the United States of America's security posture. So I'm very concerned. Yeah. You know, we had a, a story on Just the News, I think, on Tuesday, confirmed by the Homeland Security Department and CPB and others that a contractor, an Afghan national, who was a contractor for one of our agencies, uh, got on a, was trying to get on a plane at Ramstein to come to the United States in Dulles. He was through the screening process, a, an astute German military officer, by the way, not an American, a German military officer that was just helping out at the gate, noticed something unusual in his bag and they opened it up. They discovered five blasting caps, a detonator wire and a blasting tube. I actually have pictures of these devices now. You know, they pulled the guy off, finally off the flight and they, they've now put him on a red flag list. 
they don't think it's terrorism because this guy did ordinance work. But you know, just the idea that even you know anyone could walk on and that barely got noticed. Are we have we gotten too soft after nine eleven? Have we lost some of our our vigilance that we we've had? I mean that that was a, a near miss. Even if the guy didn't have ill intent, having blasting caps on a plane is not a good scenario at twenty or thirty thousand feet up up above. Right. No, you're exactly right. I mean, that's that's what I've been hearing is that you get on these planes, the vetting's weak. Look, I can't even get to the TSA with a bottle of water. Right. Uh, but somehow a guy a guy's able to get up, get there with blasting caps. You know, I mean, it is a real concern, and um, that's really what bothers me. But, John, when we're on 9-11, I don't think people realize that of the 22, you had people who had valid visas right. and others who over they had overstayed their visas which by the way half the illegal aliens in this country have overstayed visas then you also had people who actually snuck across the southern border i think it was uh, i think it was three i can't remember there i think it's three or four that came across the southern border now john where are we in trouble we're in trouble because we have visa overstays that we never tracked down and secretary mayorkas has told ice to stand down we're not going to enforce as much as we were we're not vetting everybody that's coming into this country across the southern border. And then you also have a bunch of refugees coming in from a place that has been basically in civil war for yeah. probably my entire life. You right. know? So uh, there's a lot of reasons to say we are now less safe because of Joe Biden and his policies. It is in a remarkable moment. In my interview with uh, Lee Hamilton, I'm, I'm doing a 9-11 special tomorrow, and Lee Hamilton diverted just for a second, but said something that I thought was really precious. He's a Democrat, obviously, uh, a Medal of Freedom winner, somebody that had a reputation of reaching across the aisle and trying to be common sense when it meant. And he said he had a word just chiding Biden in this current generation of Democrats that you'll never create anything lasting, he said, if you don't get bipartisan uh, buy-in because what'll happen the republicans will come in they'll reverse it then you'll come in you'll reverse it and america will be running in place uh is, is why why do the democrats and do you share this that the democrats inability to engage republicans and find common ground is basically creating a, a situation where we just seesaw back and forth we never make any progress well, i think he's right i mean Good policy is good policy, regardless of who promulgates it. But, you know, one of the weird things about this, John, is January 6th had such a chilling effect. It did. And so people that I've been working with on legislation for several years basically quit talking to me. Yeah. I mean, literally quit talking to me. I'd say, hello, Amazing. how you doing? They would not respond. Oh, um, my gosh. I, I had... I had legislation that I had introduced when we were in the majority that the colleagues from the other side had signed on to. We couldn't get it through. Then they did it. So they got the majority. So I let them lead. They took my name off the legislation, didn't want me to be on and other Republicans as well. And it's basically what has happened now is we are so divided, not just in Congress, but as a nation. You know, I do hope that maybe tomorrow people will reflect where you were on September 11th, 2001, and really remember the unity that we felt as a nation as we came together, realized we had been attacked by an outside, uh, by outsiders. Yeah. And we needed to stand. I mean, because if we don't, if we don't start pulling together on this stuff and recognizing and respecting rights, such as the, these COVID mandates are, are one more example of, of, uh, throwing gas on the device of fire. It's unbelievable, this inc this incursion that we're seeing. And it's happened so fast, John, in these last seven months or so. I don't know. And quite frankly, maybe we'll run in place for a while until things cool down significantly. When they cool down again, then maybe we can get back to making the America that you and I know. Yeah, you know, there, there's such a division. We're being divided by every possible way, whether you're vaccinated or unvaccinated. You just go on and on. And a president who talked about not leaving people behind and uniting the country seems to have created greater divides in, in a very short period of time. I want to go to one other issue because it kind of comes out of CRT. It comes out of all these things. But um, over the last few days, myself and other reporters have noticed something that the National Archives and Records Administration did. Uh, all of the digital assets of the archives are now with a warning saying uh, may contain 
harmful language. So when you open up the Constitution or the Bill of Rights or the Declaration of Independence, this warning says that there may be biased or harmful language in there. uh, And it's part of a larger movement. There were documents released under FOIA that showed that the, the same National Archives employees, their Committee on Racism, wants to remove the name Charters of Freedom from the three founding documents in America Declaration, Bill of Rights, Constitution. And then back in May, there was a meeting of that same racism committee that suggested that the rotunda in the National Archives was a, a form of structural racism. Uh, when you see America's historical preservation agency having these conversations, what comes to mind to you? Well, what comes to my mind, frankly, is these people don't understand and appreciate history. There's no gratitude in them. Historically, John, where was the world in the late 1700s? I mean, when you look at it, where was the world and what was happening in the United States of America that was so unique, so unique that the rest of the world actually stood up and started watching saying, what are they doing over there? And that failure to understand uh, the milieu that, that we were in when we be, became, when the formation of this country uh, occurred, and to see where we've moved and progressed since then, and this focus on, uh, is disturbing, but this focus on the problems, the, the imperfections of the individuals that wrote these wonderful documents, and maybe, maybe even some of their ideas, that's Marxist. Marxism actually is built on the old Hegelian uh, idea of the dialectic. That's where Marxist was there. And so you're, you're, you're looking for the bad instead of looking for the good and being optimistic. And yeah. what a, it's, it's damning the country. And so when you talk about the, the division uh, you know, that Lee uh, Hamilton was talking about in, in Congress, that division is damning the country. When I, when I say damning, I mean preventing us from the water, continue the water flowing of progress that will ensure freedom and carry us downstream in a, in a free, prosperous society where everybody, everybody has a chance to fulfill the full measure of God's creation for them. I don't know what else to say. It's, I mean, it's, it's to me, in its most brutal form, it's, it shows a, a, an incredible ignorance to where we were the, the context of where we were and as we move today, which, by the way, uh, I mean, speaking of cultural relativism, they're denying their own definitions of postmodern cultural relativism by by this kind of censorship as well. That's a great point. Again, another one of those hypocrisies and contradictions that we were were just talking about the um the, the, the standards for judging seem to shift daily like sand. It's really remarkable. Congressman, we are yeah. so grateful every time you come on this show. We always learn a lot. Um, any, any things just as we head into the next couple of weeks, what are you looking for? Last question. Uh, what are you looking for as Congress gets back? Uh, what are the big moments that everyone should be prepared for over the next couple of weeks? Well, there will be stuff with regard to the administration and, and how Republicans respond to what, what's happened. That's one. Number two, I would say you're going to need to look at this budget and spending palooza that's coming out of the Democrats, which some nonpartisan watchdog groups are saying is actually going to spend $5 trillion instead of $3.5 trillion, or at least add, add that much to our national debt. So be watching for that. And, and then I guess the third thing is all the policies that are associated with this spending package that focus on expanding government bringing power to D.C. and a Green New Deal, trying to implement the Green New Deal through the budget process, budget reconciliation process. Yeah, those are big issues, big issues that are going to shape the future of America for sure. Sir, thank you so much for your time, Tate. We look forward to getting you back on soon. Yeah, John, always good to be with you, and, and thanks for all you do. I really, really appreciate it. You do a great job, and uh, thank you. You're very kind to say so. We appreciate all you do for our country as well. Fantastic. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we've got one more interview before we wrap up the day. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. 
Bite Clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, a very special guest, the former commander of all British forces in Afghanistan, a true military hero and leader, globally recognized, Colonel Richard Kemp from the great country of Great Britain. Colonel Kemp, it is good to have you on the show. It's great to be here, John. And I'm speaking to you from the United Kingdom at the moment. So great to be with you across the Atlantic. Absolutely. We have such great reverence for our good friends in in Great Britain. They're such a great ally and friend. Do you remember exactly where you were the moment those planes hit New York and Washington? What were you doing and how did you ultimately come to be the commander of British forces in Afghanistan? I do remember exactly where I was and what I was doing. I was in, in the United Kingdom and at the time I was commanding a training organization which trained British forces for operations around the world. And um, I was training our parachute regiment prior to their deployment to Macedonia to deal with uh, an insurgency to help the Macedonians deal with an insurgency there. And all the paratroopers that were in training were watching absolutely wide-eyed, were watching these huge screen televisions as the, uh, the planes plowed into the tower. And I think we all knew at the time as soon as it happened, really, we all knew that our lives as soldiers was probably about to be transformed. And before long, I was working for um, our cabinet officer, our prime minister, effectively, on international terrorism intelligence. And after that, I got, um, I got sent out in 2003 in the early stages of the campaign to take command of British forces, a relatively small force at the time in Kabul. Right. It's hard to believe it's been almost 20 years now uh, when that war started. Bring us into those early days. What was the objective uh, in Afghanistan and how was the war going when you took over in those, those first few uh, years, 2003, 2004? Well, I think one thing a lot of people forget that um, certainly I think a lot of people over here forget that, you know, that everyone recognizes 9-11 was the greatest terrorist atrocity that's ever occurred in the history of the world, right. killing huge numbers of Americans. But some people forget also that in the Twin Towers, more British citizens died than have died in any other terrorist attack in history as well. Amazing. So, I didn't know that. Amazing. Yeah. No, yeah. it's true. It's true. And, and, and therefore, you know, apart from our natural friendship and, and loyalty to the United States of America, you know, our two countries have very clearly fought together in pretty much every major conflict since the First World War. Right. So apart from that alliance that we've got and our relationship, the two countries' relationship, um, we also had a, a very big axe to grind in Afghanistan after 9-11. And the U.S.-led invasion of uh, Afghanistan after 9-11 and, and the subsequent operations there had one specific purpose and one purpose only. That was to get rid of al-Qaeda and to get rid of the Taliban and then to prevent Afghanistan again from becoming a safe haven for terrorism. That was what the objective was when we went in there, when we went in with the Americans and other allies. Um, and that remained the objective throughout, despite a number of fairly pusillanimous politicians quite often <laughs> changing the mission because it didn't really suit them. In some cases, it didn't really suit them to be, you know, fighting. They were more interested in humanitarian aid, so they right. kind of pretended the mission was that, or dealing with drugs. But it never changed from day one, and it was a success from day one. There was never another attack significant attack launched against the West from Afghanistan. Yeah, now we really, people forget this, we really rooted al-Qaeda out of there and uh, and took away all of its operational capabilities, which was an amazing uh, moment. You made a, a, an allusion. I just want to ask about this as, as someone who was on the ground and gave so much of the effort. The nation-building part, the fact that um, uh, uh, our allies and the allied forces engaged in nation-building, well, that was a political exercise. How did the fighting men and women of Great Britain, America, the Allied forces, how did they view that part of the mission? Well, I think they saw it as being an important element of the mission, which in fact it was, because right. you know the objective from fairly early on, and, and my forces were involved to an extent in this, our, our primary 
objective because the Taliban had been swept away by the time I arrived there in 2003. Al-Qaeda had as well. Well, there was still some terrorist activity that we had to deal with from Al-Qaeda-linked organizations in 2003 in Kabul. Alongside the Americans, we worked very close with American forces in, in Kabul. You know, apart from physically directly acting to prevent terrorism in Afghanistan, you being you know, carrying out attacks against the West, we had to build a, uh, really, I think we did have to build a capability there that would enable us to withdraw. And that capability was, of course, in theory at least, the Afghan National Security Forces. Right. Uh, and in order to, in order to, to, to maintain the security forces, there had to be a government and, and therefore, you know, there had to be a, a viable nation. And, and I think those people work in the British and American forces who were there recognized the need to achieve that. Now, it wasn't achieved, as we've seen in the catastrophic events in the last mm. few weeks, but certainly that was the, the objective. If we had just gone in, swept away what was there and gone out again, then there would have been a vacuum, which would have been immediately filled by the Taliban. Yep. Uh, or by right the back. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And we, you know, people forget this because you know, history passes on and we get back to busy life. But we had a pretty remarkable, stable 16, 17, 18 years in Afghanistan where life was fairly normal. There were moments there were green on blue attacks. There were a terror attack here and there. But the Afghan people began to experience a normalcy that they had never had in their, you know, certainly in modern history. Uh, what was it like? I, I've had the blessing of meeting so many Afghan expatriates who live here in the United States. I had my neighbor across the street who helped the CIA. He was a wonderful guy. I got to meet Saberak, a famous interpreter that worked for the U.S. Marines and was wounded 18 times serving the United States and coalition forces. Um, what was it like to meet the everyday Afghan villagers and people and residents of that country? It was quite an experience. I mean, I had some experience in that part of the world, but not a great deal. You know, I think the thing that struck me above everything else right from the very beginning, and remember this is back in 2003, just, you know, a couple of years after the, right. the opera, or less than, less than two years after the operation began there. Um, but the, the, there was a very strong sense of optimism among the people in Afghanistan. They were very, very pleased to see us. They were very grateful that we were there, that we'd freed them from the shackles and the horrors of the Taliban. And the only people I ever met who weren't pleased to see us were the terrorists we were dealing with. And it's not really surprising they wouldn't be very pleased to see us, yes. but everyone else was. We shouldn't con ourselves to thinking that the average Afghan wanted the same way as life as we have in the West. You know, they're, they're Muslims, they have their own culture, they have their own religion, they have their own religious beliefs, and they didn't want to be like us. But they, I think they certainly appreciated what we gave to them. Yeah. And what we did for them, because their life, you know, their life under the Taliban, as it is now again today, was hell then. And I heard all sorts of stories from these Afghans about, mm. in various different places, about what it had been like living under that brutality and years and years of war, you know, involving the Russians, involving the Mujahideen and, and, so, and so on. And I think, you know, I think you couldn't find a starker contrast between the optimism and the gratitude, really, of the Afghan people that I met anyway back in 2003, and then seeing people, seeing images of Afghans clinging onto taxiing aircraft, trying to take mm. off, and sometimes falling to their deaths. And it's such a, you know, it's such a, a huge contrast, and I believe a, a huge betrayal, not just of the Afghans, but of our own forces who sacrificed so much over there. Yeah, yeah. I've talked to so many great uh, veterans of the war who can't believe what's happened. I want to get into that now. Uh, you have been one of the most cogent voices internationally talking about just how consequential the Biden administration's exit from the country has been. And I, I wonder if you could walk us through what you saw. I mean, you're, you're a strategist, you're a leader, you know exactly how to carry out an operation and you did it with such incredible success. How did we get this exit so wrong? I mean, it seems like if you were going to do a how not to do this, you might do what we just did. How did we get it so wrong? I think, you know, someone, a young man entering the U.S. Military Academy at West Point or the British Military Academy at Santa would have learned how not to do this from day one. It's, it's you know, the kind of lessons that were seem to have been ignored right. in getting out of Afghanistan are the kind of lessons that a brand new officer cadet or second lieutenant should have ingrained in him early on. And one of the key ones there is you don't look at the best case scenario. You look at the worst or the most dangerous case and you plan and prepare for that. Right. It seems 
that our both of our countries, Britain and the UK and the and the US, both the intelligence picture on how long the Afghan government would last, how long the Afghan security forces would last, was very clearly wrong. But intelligence, I've worked in intelligence world for many years. Intelligence is, is never an exact science. You have to assume the intelligence is telling you something, but you have to also look at what, what could go wrong, what is the worst case. And it seems that didn't happen, because if it had, then from the moment President Biden made his, which what I consider to be an absolutely shocking, shameful decision to just get out of Afghanistan without any security concerns. From the moment he took that decision, we should have started moving the vulnerable people out of Afghanistan, yeah. the, the, the citizens of our country, the, the, the interpreters have helped us, etc. We should have got them out, aid workers, not get the military out first, then have to send them back in. It was just extraordinary. And that should have been done over a period of months rather than just in a, in a panic over a period of a couple of weeks. And the actual execution of the withdrawal was done at the height of the Afghan, of the Taliban fighting season when they're at the most powerful. If it had waited for a few months into, into late autumn right? or, or winter, then it would have been far less uh, catastrophic. We probably wouldn't have seen anything like the, the suicide bomb attack we saw in Kabul airport, mm. the rocket attack. We wouldn't have had the, not only the, the shame of leaving the country and leaving it to its own devices without good reason, but also being chased out under fire, which is the images that were put out across the media. Yeah, no, it's it's unbelievable. I mean, there are decades of propaganda for the enemy now created by our exit. Um, I want to ask you about Bagram. I, I, my, of all the things that happened, I can't stop scratching my head over the decision to just, in the dead of night in July, two months before we're ready to really exit, we give back Bagram almost immediately. The prisoners, well, first it's overrun. Prisoners are let free people that we spent 20 years capturing the, the bad of the bad. And um, we have no exit strategy. We're using a commercial airport surrounded by mountains with enormous vulnerabilities. When we had this incredible facility that was secure and, uh, and, and central to American uh, operations for two decades, British operations, was there any common sense? Could, could you imagine any reason a military commander would say, hey, let's give that back now? Well, it makes no sense. And I've heard, you know, many British and American military commanders question that decision. Yep. You know, I can't work out for the life of me why that base would have been given up when it was, unless you just believed everyone was going to go swimmingly. It was going to go like clockwork. And, you know, effectively, I think the picture that was painted around that time was that, it was. yeah, we're pulling out. But the government of Afghanistan will fight on, their forces will fight on, at least until the end of the year. That was the intelligence prediction here and in the United States. Right. And everything will be great. Everything will be rosy. And, and fine, give up Bagram. It doesn't matter. But that's just dreaming. It's not a strategy. It's a dream. It's, yeah. a, it's kind of a fantasy, which did not happen and should not have been assumed to have happened. You needed to hold on to a base like Bagram, because even though it made sense to evacuate the majority of people from Kabul airport, it also made a great deal of sense to have a secondary airport you could evacuate from, which you might, you know, if you couldn't continue from Kabul or it became too dangerous, or in addition to Kabul. So you had the two options and you had the ability to deliver, you know, close support from the air from Bagram to what was going on in Kabul. That wasn't available. I mean, you know, again, I go back to if an officer cadet training at one of our military academies came up with a solution like that to a military problem, he probably wouldn't get out of it. Yeah, you academy. would have dismissed them, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Probably court-martialed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it is amazing. President Biden has made comments as, as his team has. Listen, it was inevitably going to end this way, no matter what strategy we have. I want your reaction to that president and his team's claim that it was going to happen this way, no matter what plan we put into place. Do you believe that? Absolutely. I do not believe that. It didn't need to happen like this. And, you know, they didn't believe it either. You know, I think he had hoped for a smooth withdrawal with no immediate consequences. Yes, there'd be consequences downstream, but that would be, to, to, be time to claim victory, as he has claimed victory. There'd be time to claim victory. There'd be time to sort of start garnering the votes that would flow from him ending this war. Right. And all the rest of it. That, that was his idea. When this kind of fell about him around his head, he immediately then started trying to blame everyone else for it. He blamed President Trump. And of course, you know, Trump had come up with this idea, which he'd been bound by. Of course, he wasn't bound by. He is the most powerful man in the world. He's the president of the United States. He can do what he wants. Exactly. Not what President Trump wanted to do. 
And he spent most of his time trying to undo everything that Trump did during his tenure. So why wouldn't he undo this? It's nonsense. And then he's blamed the Afghan National Security Forces. He basically accused them of cowardice. These are people who have been fighting and dying alongside American soldiers, alongside British soldiers for years. They've lost 50,000 Afghan soldiers killed fighting the Taliban. This is not, these are not cowards. They're very brave fighters, but yeah. they had everything torn out from under their feet when he decided to pull out. He says he, he ended the war in Afghanistan. He made, I heard a speech a few days back. The war in Afghanistan has ended. The war in Afghanistan has not ended. America's come out, Britain's come out, NATO's come out. It's still going on. And the place is even more dangerous today than it was when 9-11 was carried out. We face a greater threat of terrorism now in, in both our countries than we did back then. It's unfathomable to think that and to do it, you know, or to have it happen just a few days before the, the 20th anniversary of that horrible day on 9-11. What are the long-term consequences? I, I'm hearing, you know, we've had some American officials now that we're out. We got a rosy assessment. Now we're out. We're hearing, oh, well, you know, Al-Qaeda could reconstitute there. It'll be less than two years before an attack is launched from Afghanistan on American or Western interests. Do you share that there's a very bleak potential here that Afghanistan goes back to being the terror, the central operations of terrorism in the world again? I'm very sure it will. Unfortunately, I'm sorry to say it. I'm very sure that will happen. And again, Biden and our leaders over here both have come up with a kind of an, a narrative which I think seeks to reduce the damage that they have done to themselves, to their political reputations over Afghanistan. And, and that narrative is that we, you know, we've seemed somehow to have handed over Afghanistan to the good terrorists. The Taliban are now the good terrorists. They're on the same side as we are against the Islamic State, which is far more dangerous. That's just rubbish. Yep. The the Taliban and the Islamic State are not deadly enemies, as, as Biden and others claim. They, they sometimes kill each other. They sometimes hate each other. They sometimes cooperate together. That's the way of this part of the world. That's how it works. So they're not going to be fighting Islamic State on our behalf. They're not certainly going to be fighting Al-Qaeda, who have very close relationship with the Taliban now. And unlike back in 9-11, the Taliban are not just focused inwards on Afghanistan. They're also focused outwards against us. They've been fighting us for 20 years. They have some of their terrorists who have been guests in Guantanamo Bay right. and want revenge for that. So, you know, the combination of all that is, is deadly. And we will see jihadists flocking into Afghanistan as they did before 9-11, before 2001. They will flock there to train, to organize, to plan and to launch attacks against the West. In addition, this victory for the Taliban, which is the greatest victory for jihadists, certainly since the Shia revolution in Iran in 2009, which right. created the Shia terrorist state in right. Iran, which exists still today, and at least the greatest victory since then, where we now have a Sunni terrorist state in Afghanistan. This great victory has inspired jihadists all around the world. They've been celebrating in Britain, they've been celebrating in the US, they've been celebrating in Israel. Jihadists everywhere have been celebrating this victory, and it will energize them. It will increase the number of recruits, it will increase their funding, and it will encourage them to carry out, to, to, you know, to carry out more and more attacks. And I think we will see a huge danger from that. Only today, the head of MI5, the British yep. kind of equivalent to the FBI, he said that this is the effect of the pullout from Afghanistan. Yeah, and our FBI director here, Chris Ray, made similar comments that uh, terrorism is ahead, unfortunately. The war is not over. I want to just take a 30,000 step back. When history looks back at Joe Biden's execution of the last month, how will it, how will it rate what happened here? When, we're, when we have a little bit more consequence from these decisions, how big a, a moment in history and how bad a moment in history was this exit? This is the worst moment in history I can remember in my lifetime, and I'm a very old man now. <laughs> But I would say in a slightly more rational perspective, I think this is the greatest foreign policy and military disaster involving the West since the Second World War, at wow. least since the Second World War. It's not something that's happened to us like 9-11 happened to us, right. a terrible event. It happened. It couldn't be stopped. Maybe someone says it might have been, but it couldn't be stopped. This is something we did to ourselves. And I think the Biden presidency, and I, I would also extend the blame for this to, to British leaders and, and other NATO leaders, will be seen as, I think, a, a disaster because of this, just because of this one event. Other things that President Biden may or may not do, I, I, I'm not qualified to talk about, but this event, I think, will brand him one of the worst presidents the United States has ever had because it is going to be a long-term 
strategic catastrophe, not just regarding terrorism, but the U.S. reputation and the reputation of NATO and the relationship between NATO and the U.S., Britain and the U.S., around the world has been severely undermined. Yeah. At a time when we're, you know, we, we need it most. We need to be strong and united more than any other time with the, a huge threat from China, a further threat from Russia, and, and a very dangerous world. And we have made it, I would say, you know, President Biden in particular has made it a much, much more dangerous world even than it was before. Mm. As so many people I talked to today echo your words, sir. And uh, I want to first thank you for taking time today to, to share your thoughts, but also for the extraordinary service you gave the entire globe and particularly those of us here in the United States. We could not have had better allies or a better leader of allied troops than you and, and your great team. So on behalf of our grateful nation, thank you for all you did. I hope we can find a way to mitigate what is becoming, I think, one of the great global disasters of our lifetime. But we're grateful for your work, sir. Thank you, John. And it's been a real pleasure to be with you. And I would like to also say how great respect I have for U.S. armed forces and their professionalism, their courage and their fighting spirit, who I've worked with side by side for many years, including in Afghanistan. They did a phenomenal job there. And I hope we, you know, both of our countries and our armed forces can remain united and put together a strong front against this more dangerous situation now today. Yes, absolutely. That has to be the mission going forward. So, sir, thank you again for your time and uh, God bless you for all you've done for our great country and this globe. Thank you. Thank you, sir. All right, folks, we're going to be back in a second to wrap things up. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. All right, folks, welcome back. Wow, two great interviews. So much to think about from our good friend Andy Biggs, a congressman from Arizona, and Colonel Richard Kemp, a real military hero from our great allies in Great Britain. And we want to thank them. A lot to think about in what they said today. A lot to think about. And as though we don't have more to think about, tomorrow, the 20th anniversary of 9-11, tune in for a special edition of John Solomon Reports. It's called 9-11. Never forget, it is Brought to you by our good friends at PolicyGenius.com. We've got Bernie Carrick, Ted Olson, Frank Siller, Lee Hamilton, Jason Beardsley. What a lineup. All people who've had a critical, critical role on the day of 9-11 and the aftermath in the war on terror. Don't miss it. A two-hour special right here on John Solomon Reports and Just the News. God bless you. Good night. We'll be back tomorrow with that special. Please join me. It's a moment we can all spend together so that we never Never forget the sacrifices in the clarion call that 9-11-2001 brought to this great country of America. Until then, God bless you and God bless this amazing country, the United States, as he always has. You've been listening to John Solomon. Reports at justthenews.com.